It's not actually normal to have very bad cramps. It's normal to have very, maybe some mild cramps, a day or two of a little fatigue. That's it, you shouldn't be sidelined by your period. If you are, it's a red flag. So that's where women begin to be diagnosed in their teens and 20s when they start really missing school, when they have such severe pain, painful sex, then infertility can show up and that's when diagnosis can happen. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Jessica Drummond, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. We met, I think, almost a year ago at this Mm -hmm. time in Toronto at a seminar. And the moment that I heard you speak about your courses and your offerings, I was like, this woman has tons of information to share. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's really my pleasure. Yeah. So Back when we first met, you were talking about female athletes and overtraining. And we, I personally see a lot of that in my clinic from a movement perspective. I know you also have a physical therapy background. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting how a lot of women don't know. Most of us think more is better, mm-hmm. right? Training yeah. harder. Most of us don't give ourselves a rest break, but how that can really lead to burnout and problems down the road. Can you speak to a little bit of that? Yeah. And I wish we were teaching this in like high school athlete training rooms. I've just been recently consulting with some of the, some university strength and conditioning coaches and athletic trainers, because really for women, yeah, I mean, it's really important to build muscle and improve intensity and endurance and cardiovascular health, but what we have to remember is that our hormonal cycles are monthly, whereas male hormonal cycles are daily and they have less complicated hormonal cycles. They have one core hormone that really plays the biggest role, testosterone, right? So for women, if you think of that month as a time to kind of optimize your periodization of your training for performance, it's really valuable because you're not only protecting and nourishing your hormones and strength training and nourishing your muscles so that you have less insulin resistance and and things that contribute to that, but you're sort of improving your longevity. And they used this, they're using this more and more. I was teaching it at the Chinese Olympic Training Center. It was used this past year, the US women's soccer team who won internationally. It's not only beneficial health-wise, but it's actually beneficial performance-wise. So if we think of day one as the menstrual cycle is when you start bleeding, those first few days, three to four days, the hormones are relatively lower. So we want to be in, in a more of a recovery mode. It doesn't mean we don't exercise. You know, you don't have to like stay wrapped in a blanket for your period. Like you should still be able to function just fine, move, exercise, but it's not really the time to be pushing gains. And if you happen to have a competition, you want to be aware of that so that you're scaffolding everything else in your life. You're eating really well. You're getting great sleep before that. You know, you're not 
trying to do anything else, but stay focused on whatever your, your big performance goals are then. Then roughly day three to day five, increasing all the way to about day 14 when ovulation occurs most often. Your estrogen in particular, progesterone a little bit, testosterone in particular are all increasing. And this is a really positive time to start focusing on making performance gains, increasing your intensity, lifting heavier weights, you know, pace that in with adequate breaks. You know, it's not every single day from day three to 15, but it's the maximal time to get strength train gains. Plus with that increased estrogen, you're naturally less insulin resistant. So you're more insulin sensitive. So if you cheat and eat a little more sugar or things like that during that phase, it's not going to be as problematic as if you do it in the luteal phase after ovulation. And I would also say during when estrogen is highest, utilizing more fat as energy. So you want to be eating fat. I think you know female athletes sometimes really under eat fat. We need to be eating about 35% fat at least. And this is you know good fat. It shouldn't be and doesn't have to be all bacon all the time, but you know, some bacon is fine, but avocados, olive oil, nuts and seeds, fatty fishes, fish oil supplementation, this is a really good time to utilize that because when estrogen is highest, we can use it better as fuel. And then in the luteal phase post-ovulation, progesterone dominates time to sort of solidify those strength gains. Don't push the weight, but don't like do nothing either. You want to be kind of like plateauing the gains a little bit and eating more protein for muscle building. And then during this time, you're a little less insulin sensitive naturally. So making sure you're really reining in the sugar, alcohol, things like that. And then more of a recovery period, the last couple of days before the period and during the first few days of the next cycle. And the luteal phase is from day 14 to about day... Well, till you start your period again, but there's a couple days right before you start your period where all the hormones are pretty low, even progesterone. So that's a little more restful recovery kind of time, yin yoga, you know, working out, but again, not at any level of intensity. Yeah. That's so interesting. So have you taken some female athletes who are just pushing it hard every single day and then, you know, tweaking their nutrition and how they're training to their cycle and actually having them perform better? Yeah. Because they're not so tired. Like what the way I get them is they start losing their periods. They start having, you know, stress fractures this is, it's a recovery tool as well. So ideally we would do this in a preventative way, but unfortunately as a physical therapist and nutritionist, I don't usually see them until after they've pushed themselves to injury or losing their menstrual cycle. I see. Is it different for people who are more of a strength training discipline versus like a long distance runner? Well, I think you can use the same thing, but you think about intensity in different ways. So intensity for distance runners is going to be potentially speed work, putting in more miles, things like that. Whereas strength training, you're going to be looking at heavier weights, being able to work out longer before fatigue. So like, you know, for example, like even if you're in like a maybe not a bodybuilding or strength training competition, but like a CrossFit competition also has some hit 
factors, right? You know, because yeah. it goes for a while. So it's it's both. It's really both of those things. Yeah. Have you seen a difference in terms of muscle breakdown? For example, a lot of times we'll see the long distance runners start to show muscle breakdown show up in their blood work. Like, okay, maybe it's time to like <laughs> reel it in it back. And they're like, no, I want it. Like I have this big race. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh, now they have another race a month later and then another race. Like they're, they're just, it's hard to get them to do the downtime. To do the recovery. Yeah. I haven't measured it in labs, so I can't say that, but for the athletes that I work with, and I'm kind of giving them a bit of a come to Jesus because they're they're sick, you know? And it's hard because from a mental health standpoint, a lot of times it's like, let me just keep running, you know? And I'm like, okay. But to do that, you know, and not break yourself forever, we have to, you know, really, really emphasize rest and nourishment. Outsleep your competition, out eat your competition, because, and just for the own recovery sake. And the truth is, is unfortunately, the literature shows us that once people are in kind of an athletic amenorrhea problem, and especially if they're in a thinness sport, dance, gymnastics, things like that, long distance running, track, it can take up to two years of having to not exercise at all to get the hormones back. Wow. So <laughs> it's a long time. And so we can really do some serious damage to ourselves that's, that long-term increases heart disease risk, increases dementia risk. But in the short term, a lot of times we can convince the athletes by showing them the performance risks. Yeah. There was just an article in the New York Times featuring the female runner, Mary, Mary Kane. Yes. It was really interesting to, you know, as a, as a runner being trained under, you know, famous coaches to be, continue to be pushed to lose weight and then to start, you know, she was talking about her hair falling out and, you know, mental fog and depression, I'm sure on multiple levels. Yeah. That pressure to lose weight for your sport seems, I don't know, it's just a foreign concept, but I feel like, especially in some of the elite athletes, it's really pushed. It's interesting. Yeah. Because I grew up as a gymnast and this was like in the, I started in probably the early eighties until I went into college. So that was like 1992. And at that time we knew almost nothing. I had like Russian coaches who were telling me to eat chocolate bars with almonds during, you know, and we were kids, right? We were, that's like, just give kids sugar. That sounds like a terrible idea, but it was fine because we were kids. And I would say that at the highest level back then, there was much more of an emphasis on thinness. But if you look at, even in the world of gymnastics, and I can't believe I'm blanking on the woman's name right now, who's like the, the pinnacle. I mean, she's like, you know, she's like the Serena Williams of gymnastics. Simone. These women, yes, yeah, Simone yeah. Biles, these women are not skinny. You know, they're small. I mean, this Simone Biles is, is short, but, you know, she's an elite gymnast. Yeah. But they're muscular and runners, you know, I think that sport actually has a ways to go in terms of like really understanding what could be healthy because I've seen a lot of conversations around elite 
runners may be getting faster, but there's a lot of burnout of some of the people that are most talented. So I think that sport has to do a little bit of introspection. So fatness, no, but smallness, no, either, you know, shrinking, 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 you lose that hormonal support. I mean, you know, the, the girls that I was doing gymnastics with, like you didn't get your period until you were 16, at least you lost it for years. There's a thinness and a fragileness that, that over time is not really good for even the sport, maybe very short term. You could you know, make some gains. But then now, you know, these women are my age in forties, fifties, even a little bit older, and you have serious problems. You've got osteoporosis, you've got dementia, you've got brain fog, mild cognitive impairment, cardiovascular issues. And so from my perspective, I think we need to evolve from that idea that the smaller the woman, the better. Yeah. What if someone is wondering, hmm, am I overtraining? Like, isn't tiredness just kind of like (laughs) the burning the candle at both ends way of life these days? What would be some other symptoms of potentially overtraining that would show up? So I think not just fatigue, but insomnia. So fatigue and insomnia is a big red flag. Waking up in the middle of the night, especially around four, between two and 4 a.m. shows that your blood sugar is off very often, especially like it's one thing to get up, pee, go back to sleep. But if you wake up between two and four and then can't go back to sleep, that's a cortisol issue, usually a blood sugar issue. Any signs of inflammation, so chronic pain, anxiety is a big one. I think one of the other things that we, we don't think about enough is how when we're overtraining, we're depleting the precursors for the brain neurotransmitters. So anxiety, depression, when gut microbiome is off, so you might be having digestive symptoms and things like thyroid. You were asking about Hashimoto's. So thyroid symptoms, when the thyroid is stressed to the point where the body is sort of attacking the thyroid, this is really an immune condition. It's, it's really the, it's, a, it's chronic immune stress. Then you have hair loss, you have cold hands and feet, you have temperature regulation issues. And again, you know, I, I really like to think of the menstrual cycle as the fifth vital sign in that if you don't have a healthy, regular menstrual cycle, that's a red flag. Hmm. For someone who does have those symptoms and maybe they're seeing someone who, maybe it's just a primary care, right? maybe not necessarily a full kind of integrative approach. Is there certain blood work that you would hope someone would get? Yeah. I think for thyroid, you would want to look at TSH, which is pretty standard, but the range that you have in most labs is like the 2005 range that has been disproven. So we we want that range a little narrower. We want TSH to be less than two. I think it's like 0.3 or 0.5 to two would be ideal. Although sometimes the normal lab ranges go up to five. T4 and T3 are also important to look at because T3 is actually the active hormone. So TSH signals the release of T4 and then T3. So we want to look a little deeper than just the highest level regarding thyroid. 
vitamin D is really important. So getting that in optimal range of about 50 to 80. Iron is a useful, iron and, and B12, serum B12 isn't a great measure for much, but methylmalonic acid does show B12 absorption, serum, iron, and ferritin. Those three nutrients along with vitamin D is the kind of blood work that you can get from your primary care doctor that will give you kind of a rough idea if you're absorbing nutrients from a blood work standpoint very well. And that kind of gives some clues to digestion. Also just sort of looking at the fingernails and the skin, you know, is everything brittle? Is your hair brittle? That shows me that we're not really absorbing nutrients or getting as much nutrients as we need, both proteins, amino acids, but also vitamins and minerals. You can look at general inflammation with an HSCRP level. You can do basic blood sugar stability, blood work. So a fasting glucose should be between about 80 and 89, hemoglobin A1C, and just lipids. So we want high HDLs. And you know, normal LDLs, we don't want super low LDLs because then you can't make hormones if you don't have enough cholesterol. So normal HDL, high LDL, and low triglycerides is what I'm looking for in, on a normal lipid panel. I was reading somewhere there's like the female athlete triad. What is that? Yeah. So that's the old fashioned word for what we used to call what's now called REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. It used to be just female athlete triad, which is osteoporosis or osteopenia, amenorrhea, and eating disorder. So osteoporosis is like shown up usually as a stress fracture or fracture. Mm -hmm. Eating disorder, which was loosely defined, but basically not eating enough calories for what you're exporting, export, putting out in as an athlete and amenorrhea. So now the term was revised by the, I think it was the IOC or the WHO about five years ago. And now it's, it's broadened to be called relative energy deficiency in sport with the knowledge that men can have this too. Men can have eating disorders in sport and the effects are wider than just on your period and on your bones. It affects on your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your nervous system, performance negatives, muscle building, musculoskeletal health. Also the other things, also your hormone health and your bone health, but it's just been a broadened conversation now, which I think is good because we're saying like, if your menstrual cycle and your eating habits are unhealthy as an athlete, the effects are wide reaching. I feel like a lot of the research just in general is on male athletes. Like there's so much less research on female athletes. Why is that? Well, it's because of how research is designed. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them is just that everything in medicine and healthcare is patriarchal because that's how it was designed. But also because when you're talking about designing studies, the fewer variables, the better. And men are simpler when it comes to things like periods and hormonal fluctuations throughout the month and things like that. So the male body is seen as like the, the standard. Hmm. Which but is it's so, it's not. <laughs> and it doesn't always extrapolate. Like we can have great research in men, but it's not always applicable to women. So we do, there is more research in women now than there ever has been, but yeah, we have a ways to go. Yeah. 
I'd love to make a pivot. You are currently in a book launch on a topic that I actually don't know a lot about, but I'd love to dive into of endometriosis. Yeah. So endometriosis, the book is called Outsmart Endo. And endometriosis is a challenging disease process because from a functional integrative perspective, I like to think of it in in the same way as we think about cancer or autoimmune disease or even Alzheimer's because it has a lot of the same components. So endometriosis has these lesions that are kind of like cancer. They're little lesions, like, you know, cancerous lesions created from cells that are similar to the cells inside of the uterus. That's the clinical name for that is the endometrium. That's why it's called endometriosis. So cells that are alike, but not exactly the same, but pretty similar to the cells inside the uterus are found growing outside of the uterus in little lesions like cancer, but not cancer. Although it can become cancer. There's a higher risk of cancer if you have endo, but mostly it's benign. So these lesions can grow on the bowel. They can grow like all around inside the abdominal and pelvic cavity on organs, on the outside of the ovaries, on the fallopian tubes, on the outside of the uterus, bladder. It's even been found on the lungs and in the nasal passages. So it can spread. How it spreads is up for a lot of debate. The original causes of endometriosis is up for a lot of debate, but there is a genetic component. And then you've got these cellular lesions. And and this is where I think it gets interesting and how we have more power over it than we originally thought because it's a very painful condition in, in many cases, impacting fertility, impacting hormones, impacting menstrual health. And what we used to do is just sort of shut it down, like put people on birth control or estrogen depleting drugs to try to just not feed the lesions. But that doesn't always work because not all of the lesions are nourished by estrogen, but there is some component of inflammation. So in Alzheimer's, for example, you can have the tangles and plaques in the brain on imaging in 85-year-old people, 90-year-old people who don't have dementia. Yeah. And the difference is, is the inflammation. So they have the lesions without the inflammation. So this is the goal that I try to attain in our practice for women with endo. Sometimes they do have to have a surgery to remove the physical lesion because it's, you know, in a, in a bad place, but the more we can lower the inflammation and optimize the immune system. So it's not, there are also autoimmune factors then, and there are digestive factors and other kind of comorbid factors, bladder pain, vaginal pain, things like that. We can minimize the effects of the disease, even if you have the same lesions, because it's not consistent that someone who has really severe endometrial widespread lesions could have almost no pain just normally. Mm-hmm. And someone with very few stage one lesions can be in severe life-altering pain. And Usually this shows up to the point of diagnosis in the 20s or 30s in a woman who, if if like, this is your story, okay, when I was like eight, I started having stomach aches, eight, nine, 10, and then I kind of had missing school. I was sort of like crampy. And then you get your period and you have those like killer cramps and you talk to your mom and your aunts and your grandma and they're like, oh yeah, once a month, you're probably going to have to miss school for a couple of days. It's the number one cause of girls having to miss school. But because there's a genetic component, a lot of times it's normalized within families because the women in the family don't know 
any different. It's like, oh yeah, it's really bad. Get ready. You know? And then you're like, oh great. So then there's no so much gloom and doom. (laughs) Yeah. So then there's no real seeking treatment because the women often feel that it's normal. And that's kind of normalizing conversation, right? Like every tampon commercial is about like how awful you're going to feel and all that stuff. But it's not actually normal to have very bad cramps. It's normal to have very, maybe some mild cramps, a day or two of a little fatigue. That's it. You shouldn't be sidelined by your period. If you are, it's a red flag. So that's where women begin to be diagnosed in their teens and 20s when they start really missing school, when they have such severe pain, painful sex, then infertility can show up. And that's when diagnosis can happen. Now, the challenge is is that it's a surgical diagnosis. So people who are familiar with endo can give you a likelihood of diagnosis based on history, but there's no clear imaging studies. There's no clear blood tests you can do to get a diagnosis. It's only able to be diagnosed with good, skilled laparoscopic surgery. Hmm, I didn't know that. I was thinking maybe ultrasound would be potential, but only surgery. That's wild. So then the women that get diagnosed, what is like the traditional next step? And then what is maybe a better approach, which would be turning down the dial on the inflammation? Yeah. So even before true surgical diagnosis, sometimes you can see endo on imaging. It's not ruled out if you didn't see it, but if you do see it, then it's there. So first line treatments are things like birth control pills, other estrogen suppressing drugs, and pain medication just to control the symptoms. Also surgery. So there are two kinds of endometriosis surgery. The gold standard is what's known as excision surgery, where you really kind of excise the whole lesion out, or there's ablation where they burn it off, but that's not the best way to go. Good excision surgery can be really valuable. And the sooner it's done, the less complicated it is, the more likely fertility is preserved, things like that. So I'm a proponent of extension surgery depending on certain factors, but it is a good part of the therapy in many cases. So from a kind of PT and nutrition standpoint, let's say surgery is a good part of your journey. Totally fine. But before that, we want to use nutrition and sleep and not over-exercising, but moving, meditation, other mindfulness practices, lots of things that that downtrain the nervous system, kind of calm the nervous system, understanding of pain science, where pain signals originate so that we're not catastrophizing pain, just even how we talk about pain can make it worse. So really having a safe space to feel your stories about pain, process any trauma you've experienced related to the pain, which could be as simple as 15 doctors thought I was nuts, you know, that that's trauma, traumatic itself. So preparing for surgery and then getting the best possible outcomes by doing everything we would do post-op with knee surgery, you know, lowered inflammation, fish oil, turmeric, healthy nutrition, recovery period, support, and that in that whole perspective. But for generally right now, and, and this is changing because for 10 years now, I've been talking to endosurgeons, but it's taking a while. That pre and post-op isn't really considered in women's pelvic surgery, the same way we would consider it in knee surgery, but it's really just as important. Yeah. Does diagnosis often get missed since it's so specific to like 
surgery is like gets the true diagnosis. Yeah. It's often misdiagnosed and you don't always have to diagnose it. So let's say someone has chronic pelvic pain. There are two things that really treat that on a front line. One, this sort of nutrition integrative approach, but also pelvic health physical therapies because the muscles of the pelvic floor, it's kind of like if you had something irritating your neck, you would tense up you know, for years, you'd have your hand in a fist for years. Well, we've got to kind of release all that and relax the muscles and any scarring from anything else. And then in many cases, the symptoms can be completely resolved. Mm. The pain symptoms, even the fertility symptoms in, in many cases. So it's not necessary in every case to di- get a diagnosis that's a surgical diagnosis if the disease is well managed. Mm. But if you are concerned about fertility, if you do all that and you still have symptoms, that's the time when we talk about that more. Yeah. Fertility is harder with endo. Oh yeah. It's one of the top causes for infertility. Hmm. And then higher, is there a higher, a correlation of higher chance of miscarriage as well? I, I don't know that off the top of my head, what the stats are on miscarriage, but I would imagine in some cases, depending on the location of the lesions. Yeah. Yeah. You teach a lot on pelvic floor health as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's say someone has seen a pelvic floor therapist, but maybe they're still feeling pain symptoms in the pelvic floor. Where would, and obviously there's lots of different factors, but where would you start to have someone look outside of just like the pure biomechanical I think I would look at biochemical, like how is their digestive function? Are they absorbing nutrients? Are they getting enough precursors to brain neurotransmitters? Because if the brain is starved of oxygen, if you have anemia, if you have blood sugar dysregulation, if you're not absorbing proteins well, and a lot of times that looks like a lot of different things, but sometimes it overlaps with anxiety. Pain signaling always originates in the brain. It doesn't mean it's in your head. There's real physical pain there, but it's worsened if the body is in a more emergent situation. So like the brain is involved in kind of making sure the environment is safe. So if you're anemic and your blood sugar is all over the place and you're not absorbing nutrients, that's like danger signals to the brain. So even if you have a relatively minor pelvic floor tension or chronic low-grade yeast or dysbiosis or something, the signaling of pain can be amplified by what's going on in the rest of your body. Chronic inflammation, gut dysbiosis, all of these things have the potential biochemically to amplify those signaling. So that's where I would go next. And then beyond that, with pelvic pain, there's a lot of overlap with trauma, history of childhood trauma, sexual trauma. So the more we have safe spaces for women to really tell those stories and process the trauma and know that they're being believed, you know, if you're nervous all the time that your healthcare professionals are judging you or whatever, you're just not going to be able to healthfully process that trauma to let go of the symptoms that are psychosocial. Again, real. Psychosocial is not psychosomatic. It's real. Yeah. I think that's so important because I think a lot of, especially people who don't know that like pain originates in the brain, think, oh, I feel a pain in my pelvic floor. I've had women describe like, I feel like I got punched in the vagina. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's what it feels like 24 seven. 
And they're so focused on the pain down there that they don't realize that it's originating in the brain and there's so many other factors that can affect the brain. Do you think being on a diet like a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet can affect that nourishment? Sometimes, yes. So there's benefits to vegan and vegetarian diets if they're done well because they're very anti-inflammatory. But you miss that pro... It's very difficult to get, in my experience, to get enough high-quality protein from a vegan diet that's well-absorbed and that fills up the, the brain's need for protein, for amino acids, especially if someone is like a strength training athlete, because you need so much protein. You need like 70, 100, more, even more grams of protein, depending on how you know, heavy or tall the, the woman is. And it's just frankly hard to eat that much. You know, I mean, you can only absorb protein about 20 to 30 grams at a time. So suddenly you're eating like seven, you know, (laughs) seven cups of quinoa. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or, you know, five protein shakes a day. And it's just, it's kind of unsustainable, you know? So it really depends. I'm not dogmatic about any particular nutrition plan, but I think we have to be realistic about the needs of the biochemical needs of the women. And so for pelvic floor, like recovery, let's say someone is postpartum and they're going to be powerlifting and they had a grade two tear, you know, I'm going to be invested in making sure their pelvic floor muscles are healing, that they're getting tons of bone broth and collagen and high, well-absorbing protein supplements or protein foods and supplements, that their digestive function is good so they can actually absorb absorb that stuff. And then we can get back to that heavier exercise. But if we don't have that nourishment, it can be hard to do. Now, there are bad non-vegetarian and vegan diets too. I mean, you could live on chocolate chip cookies and pasta, which was pretty much what I lived on as a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) All on that same diet growing up. (laughs) So... Yeah. It's interesting when you, when you talk about trauma, is it because, and this is just me processing it. So like traumatic an event when we're younger, maybe a traumatic sexual event now creates this kind of going to like the polyvagal theory. Like it creates this immobilization, this sense of fear when we don't feel safe. And it creates literally like a, like a, like a tightening of the pelvic floor, 24 seven. I mean, that's how I kind of process it from a biomechanical level. Yeah. Um, That might be a little bit oversimplified, but it's basically true in the sense that ACEs, so adverse childhood events or other history of trauma, we know resets the nervous system. It makes us vulnerable to stress more vulnerable than people who don't experience that. It actually changes your nervous system's resilience. And it's hard to get that back, especially if the trauma occurred either in childhood or younger, you know, like under age 10, 12, or in the teen years when puberty is going on or during pregnancy or during postpartum, especially if someone's nursing. Because not only do you have the trauma, but you've got an altered hormonal environment. And like for in childhood trauma, for example, if you can't feel safe as a child where you need to depend on 
adults, you know, there's an important health-wise level of attachment that people have to be able to get in childhood where you can trust that the world, there are places in the world that are safe. And, you know, even if that is kind of an illusion, like accidents happen all the time, but generally speaking, you as a child should feel safe among certain adults, right? And if your nervous system never gets that opportunity, it's hard to give the nervous system the level of resilience that it would have had if it had had that in childhood or in the teen years. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A much better explanation than my simple <laughs> version. <laughs> well, and you know, I don't want people to despair because the truth is we can improve that resilience, but it just does take work. Meditation is one of the best ways I've found to really reset the nervous system and improve that sense of safety, but also nourishment. Because again, if we're lacking nourishment, the brain is in a danger seeking mode. Cause it's kind of like, you know, if you think evolutionarily, the biggest risk was being somewhere with no food. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a certain kind of meditation that you prescribe to or recommend to your clients? I think any form of mindfulness or meditation is great, whatever works for you. Personally, and the one I prescribe just because I find it easy, uh, easier, none of it's really super easy, but is called Ziva meditation, which my friend Emily sort of created that technique. I like it personally, and I've tried a lot of techniques. I learned mindfulness at Duke. I was training it when I was pregnant. In the past, I almost always just either fell asleep or got so bored that I just couldn't keep doing it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've yeah. always been on the podcast. So oh, she has. Okay. Yeah, she has shared her wealth and knowledge. But yes, I agree. It's so great for, for the real day person who's super yeah. busy. Yeah. Because I'm one of those people. I have two small kids. My husband travels a lot for work. I run a company. I have patients. I'm super busy and I've been doing that technique of meditation for about a year, a little more than a year, year and a half. And it's the only thing of all the different things I've trained that I do every day. Amazing. What great discipline. (laughs) (laughs) Well. (laughs) Why do you think some people may be more resilient to trauma than others? Like one person can have trauma in their childhood and not experience maybe physical symptoms down the road. I mean, obviously it manifests in people differently. And then some people can have just like, you know, come from a worn torn country and, you know, a place where you think they would never feel safe and maybe from an outward appearance seem resilient. I really don't know. Uh, I don't, that's a great question. But I don't know. I mean, and I, I think it's really interesting. It's just not an area of research I've looked at much, but I agree with you. I think that's there's a lot to learn from that because there are there is a school of thought called po- there's like post-traumatic stress, right? PTSD. Yeah. But there's also post-traumatic growth. And there are people more in the psychology community, but there are people and and just people who have experienced significant trauma who are actively working as they process their trauma to make that trauma an opportunity for growth for them, an opportunity for them to kind of shine the light for other people. And I think sometimes obviously that just happens naturally because you know there are people in more return countries who don't know about post-traumatic growth yeah. theory yeah. <laughs> 
And then I think there are other people because we have the internet and, you know, you can learn about these things pretty easily who make a choice when something really bad happens to them, particularly in adulthood or even in adulthood, knowing they have to process the past trauma to make a choice to process that trauma in the, in this way. Yeah. You have an Institute, the integrative women's health Institute where you train practitioners. Yeah. So cool. How many practitioners have gone through the Institute? Oh, a couple thousand at this point. Yeah. We've trained people in 60 countries. So it's been around about 10 years. Yeah. And so for people who are interested in learning more, can you just kind of give us a glimpse of what, as someone who goes through the Institute, what, what they learn? Yeah. So right now in alignment with the book launch, we are launching our initial code, like short-term kind of accelerator coach program for people who are interested in taking care of patients with endometriosis or clients. So we're a coach training organization. We do train a lot of practitioners who do have healthcare licenses, gynecologists, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, occupational therapists, but we also train coaches, fitness professionals, wellness professionals to bring this integrative mindset to women's health in general. And like I said, we're in the short term focusing on endometriosis, but we do have a generalist women's health coach certification and other short-term training courses, more like CEU courses like hormones or female athletes, things like that. Because you know, I think really fitness professionals, physical therapists, even more than doctors are so on the ground with women that I want them to have this knowledge so that they can almost be like the case manager, like the social worker of like, okay, let me show you. It looks like there's some red flags popping up. Let's think about the team we want to put together to help you manage whatever it is. Yeah. That's so important because really the trainers and the people on the ground are they're like seeing it. They're probably seeing something off, but they don't know what to do with that information. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Is there anything that you would like to leave the audience that we haven't talked about yet? I would just say that I'm very encouraged. You know, I've been in, in women's health for 20 years, really. And I'm very encouraged by the empowerment of the voices of women in general. You know, the fact that Mary Kane even came out and said that stuff to the Washington Post. All the women in elite gymnastics who turned in that guy who was sexually abusing them. Like, don't be afraid to expose anything that you are worried is not wrong, is wrong. Because if anything's going on in your body or in your training or in your health, there may not be the immediate person, like your, your personal, you know, primary care doctor just might not really know what to do about it, but the unearthing and and more holistic approach to healing and optimizing women's health and performance is a stronger and stronger conversation every year over the last several years. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Our website is integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com and we're pretty active on Instagram at Integrative Women's Health. Amazing. Thank you. And then the book comes... The book is in pre-launch right now. It's called Outsmart Endo and it, it will be released, I believe it's January 14th. Amazing. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's a wrap. 
I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you wanna share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys, so much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.